chapter 6. Um, and we'll look at verse 15, and these verses should be showing up there. We've been talking about the seven signs of John in the book of John about Jesus Christ. John uses signs. He uses the word sign to describe special miracles that he does. Not all of Jesus' miracles are listed in the book of John. But the ones that are listed, he says in John chapter 21, verse 25, there are so many more miracles that he did that these were miracles that could not be, they could not be documented, they could not be chronicled. Because he uses the word, I suppose that even the world itself, excuse me, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written, amen. Beautiful, isn't it? That all the books in the world could not contain the things that were written. These seven signs, we've talked about a few of them, and I want to review them. Changing the water into wine at the wedding at Cana in John 2. Healing the royal official's son, John 4. Healing the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem in John 5. Feeding the 5,000, we talked about that last week really briefly in John 6. And then we're going to talk about today uh, the, when he is walking on the water. And there's some really beautiful things here that I guarantee you, I guarantee you've never heard them or we're going to give you back your tithe and offering. <laughs> guarantee satisfaction. No, we're not going to do that. Um, Jesus walking on the water. Jesus walking on the water. And there's so much here that's so, so much to unpack. And when we think about Jesus Christ, uh, the signs that John is using here, the signs are revealing something about Jesus Christ. That the miracle is more than just doing something miraculous and doing something more powerful. It's a revelation of who Jesus is. When we talk about knowing God and we talk about the glory of God, it's so hard to know. It's impossible to know God without Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is like the filter. It's like the incar- he is the incarnation. He is the telescope, the microscope. He is, he is the perspective. He is the glasses that we wear to see who God is. If we were to say, look at the sun and, and study the sun as a planet, we couldn't even look at it because it would be too bright and it would burn out our eyes. But we can look at Jesus. And Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And Jesus is the express image of who God is. And that's what's so important. In the book of John, Jesus here, is this, chapter 6, there's three things that he's telling us in chapter 6. Number one, that Jesus is uncontrollable. He can't be manipulated. He's uncontrollable. Amen? Number two, he's wonderful. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a one, he, is, he knows, he's predictable. He's uncontrollable, but at the same time, he's knowable and he's predictable. And number three, he's our Jonah. And if you're really curious about what are these three things, just stay tuned and let's look at this together. Though the miracle of walking on water was not described as a sign, it is a supplemental part of the feeding of the 5,000. Because what happens here and what Jesus says is a vital part of understanding the miracle of the bread and the fish. We can't understand what Jesus is, we can't understand the bread and the fish without understanding this supplemental part with Jesus walking in the water. And the point is, and I'm going to, it's a spoiler alert, I'm going to give you the theme of the message before I close. The point of the message is that the bread of miracle is not enough. The miracle of bread is not enough. We needed one more thing. And let's look at that together. Verses 15 through 18. I want to read these again um, together with you. And I don't know if we've actually read the scripture, but let's look at verse uh, 15 of chapter 6. 
And normally Pastor Adam does this um, before we preach. But verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea of Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Verse 18, and the sea became rough because the strong because a strong wind was blowing. After they saw the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, they intended to make him king. It says they, they were going to force him. The word, Greek word there for force is the same word we use for rapture. They were going to actually grab him, pull him out of what he was doing, and they were going to set him up and make him king. And when they did this, Jesus understood that, and so he withdrew himself. And where does he go? He goes back to the mountain where he did the miracle. He's like, we've got to go back there again, and we've got to redo this. Because Jesus understood that there are three things that these people needed, that the nation of Israel needed, and also us as Americans, as people today, human beings, we need three things. Number one, we need bread, right? We need bread, right? We need, we need sustenance. Bread represented the basics of life, the base need for life. We can live with nothing else but bread and water, and we can live. Number two, they needed a, they needed a national, as Jews, they needed national affirmation. And they needed it in the form of a king. Do you see that today in America? Where we are looking for leaders to affirm our, our national entity. And we look for a king. And we want to, and there's so much talk today on the, on the radio and on, on the news about um, this national affirmation that we seek for in the form of a person, a king. And number three, they needed a genie. <laughs> they needed a genie. Your wish is my command. And that's how sometimes, this is how these people are looking at Jesus that whenever they needed something that they could just make a wish and that Jesus would would supply that and these are three things that Jesus is not going to provide or guarantee these people because Jesus didn't come to deal with Israel's political and economic and social problems Jesus didn't come to do that as as they expected he came to meet our biggest need what is our biggest need what do we need today what's our What's our base need? What's the biggest need that you have in your life? What's the biggest need that we need as a teenager? I bet the teenagers could answer this. Okay, close. I like it. We got some feedback going on here. Great. What do we need? What's our greatest need? Okay, and, and, and if you get it wrong, we're not going to cast you out. Okay, Deborah. That's exactly right. We need Jesus. We need to be saved. That's what we need to be saved from ourselves. And all that else is like forgiveness and, and all of that um, is necessary. All of that is so, is so needed. We need God. That's what we, amen. We need, a, we need God. We said, like, you know, we don't have to, I don't know if you've ever prayed for your daily bread. I have multiple times. And it's like, Lord, I need you. I need you. I need you. And so what does Jesus do here? The base problem is sin here and death, and we need it to be reconciled to God. So what does Jesus do when he sees this, when he sees that they're going to take him by force? And by the way, these people don't understand who Jesus is. They just know he's, he's going to be our bread king, and he's going he's to bring back our national pride. He's going to bring back some national identity that we've lost under the dominion and under the abuse of the Roman Empire. And what's he going to do? So what does Jesus do? He withdraws. And you know something, whenever we live with great, whenever we live 
with great blessing in our life. When there's great answers to prayer in your life, we need to be, we need to be very careful at that moment because at that moment, it'd be so easy to forget who Christ is. We forget to, it'd be so easy to forget God. And so Jesus withdraws. And it's very interesting because we read here in the scripture that we just read that there is this downward, there is this, digre- there is this, there is this breakdown, there's this downward direction going. It's, it says here that Jesus withdraws. They're waiting for Jesus. He doesn't show up. How, what else does it say here? It says that, um, so they get into a boat and they start across the sea to Capernaum. Now it's getting dark. Jesus had not come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. It's getting progressively worse. And I think that God allows circumstances in our life to make us ask the question, how shall we be saved? How shall we be delivered? And it's not that I need money from somebody or somebody owes me money or my business is not working the way it should or my marriage is not working. I need my, I need this, I need my spouse to get on the ball and just kind of step up to the plate. I mean, we could say that all the time, but what is our greatest need? Our greatest need is, to, is that we need, we need Christ in the circumstance. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. But the sea becomes rough. And it becomes, it becomes something that just is a, 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 an unbelievable force. Because there are many times on the Sea of Galilee, there would be these storms. Because the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. Israel is a very interesting location. It's a very interesting country. Because topographically, there's so many anomalies about it. But one of the... Gr- one of the most interesting things is that the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. And so what will happen is sometimes you'll have these warm winds coming in. They'll just kind of descend into the sea and it'll cause this disruption. And so there's this storm. And this storm here is creating a circumstance here that Jesus is going to walk in on. And look at, and look at this with me. There's, there's, there, the, the first thing here I'm saying today is that Jesus is not controllable. He, is not, he, he cannot be tamed. You know, when we look, and that's kind of an odd thing to say, but stick with me here. When we look at the animals and when we look at the creation that we live in, we see some pretty frightening creatures, don't we? We see a shark. We see, we see snakes. We see spiders. Um, I don't know if you're s- scared of those things. I, I'm, I'm not necessarily scared of those things. I don't want to be bitten by them. Actually, in Texas, I just found out that, and this is, I've never heard of this, only in Texas, that I was over there in the back, and I was sitting there one, one day after church, and there's this ladybug, what I thought was a ladybug, crawling on my arm. And Brooklyn said to me, she goes, watch out, that bites. I go, it's a ladybug. They go, no, it's a Texan lady, ladybug. And they bite. <laughs> and it wasn't red, it was like brown or something, right? So it's like, I'm looking at it, and it's like just looking at me. I'm thinking, wow, like, this is an interesting state. And you guys know, we're not, I'm not from here originally, um, as you know. But I thought, wow, only in Texas do we have ladybugs that are so feminine, but they're just going to chomp into your skin and bite you. I was like, wow, this is, a, this is a great state. We live in this, you know, we live in this world where there's all of these, you know, these scary creatures. And you know what it tells me? That God is terrifying. That God is a terrifying God. There's an aspect about God's terror. And, 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 I, and, 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 and Jesus came into the picture to satisfy that terror, to satisfy that justice. And so Jesus is uncontrollable. Why is he uncontrollable? Number one, people can't control him. We have this impression that if we're right with God, bad things aren't going to happen to us. No storms are going to come. You know, prosperity. And this is really a prosperity or a good works gospel. But this is a form of manipulation. This is a form of manipulation of Jesus. And Jesus will not be manipulated. Number two, he, um, Jesus is not affected by nature or the laws of physics in our world. 
He's not affected by things that would normally that would normally cause us to fear or that would cause us to be afraid. We see Jesus walking on the water. And it's interesting because the Greek word here, it says um, in verse in verse 19, they're rowing into they're rowing into the wind and they're going three or four miles. And the and the and the and the, the, the original here is describing just effort. They're just rowing into the wind and and they saw Jesus walking on the water in verse 19. And this word walking is not like, you know, I think the idea that we could get is like from, like, you know, like if you read the DC comics or Superman or these superheroes, he- which are really, really, by the way, these superheroes that you hear about, like Superman and all of these characters, are just re- rehashed mythological Greek and Roman and Sumerian gods. It's, it's, it. And so when we see these when we see these superheroes and they fight with each other, they're hungry, they can get injured, they love. It just sounds like another version of Greek mythology, doesn't it? And when we think about these superheroes, and I remember as a kid watching Superman, you know, Superman's in a situation where there's a lot of wind and he's getting, you know, these these the, the villains are throwing these cars at him and he's getting hit and he's going back like, you know, like a, a quarter of a mile and he gets up and he comes. This is the picture that people have of God and the picture of Jesus that Jesus here in the water is being, he's in this, he's in the, you know, he's walking on the water and this wind is blowing and his robe and his, it is, is like, in, you know, flapping in the wind and, and he's striving and he's struggling, he's treading forward and that's not the picture at all in the Greek. The Greek word here is a word that describes very interesting, it means to amble or stroll. It means just to walk. It means to, it means another way to describe this word in the Greek is to stop on a journey and to walk and to look around. It's almost a word that we could say that is a word that could used to be used as to sightsee. Because the Greek word here is peripeto, which means to walk around, to look around, to walk, to, to meander. It's like, and the picture is here that he is totally not being controlled by nature. He's not being affected by the elements. He's not being impacted by the wind or the lightning, or the storm, and he's not even, you know, he's not even, he's not being affected in any way, and he's walking, and he's not treading, and he's not pushing forward, and trying to get through the wind, and Jesus is not, he's just walking, and these are sailors, they're in a storm, and if you're a sailor, and I know, I know there's maybe a couple of you in here that were in the Navy, or, or sailed, that a storm on the water is much more dangerous than a storm on the land, Jesus is Jesus is strolling. He's throwing, walking through the worst known force on earth. The greatest uncontrollable forces in the world have no power over him. And verse 19, it talks about this storm. And these storms on the water are the worst because, um, you know, when Harvey came, and how many of you lived through Harvey? Uh, we're living here, we, we did. And I just remember, like, being outside and just a sense of confusion and, catastrophe and what could happen next and these very large objects being thrown through the air the wind you can't hear anything but the wind Uh, massive trees are being uprooted houses are being tipped over water everywhere this is a massive massive storm and you could take a nuclear bomb i mean these these hurricanes these storms these wind storms are so great and they're so mighty and they're so powerful you could take a nuclear bomb and drop it right in the middle of the hurricane it's not going to really do anything at all this is one of the greatest for, one of the greatest forces 
on the earth. And when Jesus here is walking through the storm, he's not walking through something that where you could, you know, and the, and the sailors are there. And it's not like something that, that, that the sailors could just run away and duck into a house or under, under something that is secure that's not going to be blown around. They're in the middle of the water. This is the greatest sense of insecurity. And this storm, these storms, um, these storms are something that the Bible talks about. And very often when we think about our walk with God, our life with God, we kind of associate it with a life, with a, with a land journey, but it really is not. Psalm 77 verse 19, the Bible says that our way with God is as through the sea. Our path is through the great waters and his footprints are not seen. Our walk with God is upon the waters and there's darkness upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God in Genesis 1 verse 1 is moving across your waters. Storms exist. And when we think about a storm, and this is what the sailors are thinking, this is what these disciples are thinking. Storms exist in our life because we messed up our world. We may, be not, we may, not, have done, we may not have messed up our world, but Adam did. The Adam that's in us, the first Adam messed up his world. Adam and Eve messed up their utopia. And if we were in the same place today in a utopia that was un that was in, that was perfect that was that was unblemished we would also break it we would also mess it up maybe there are storms in your life today that you have caused maybe there's a storm that maybe you didn't cause but in, in some way you feel like you're 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 guilty of it maybe you're in a storm today that you're in a, that you feel like you're a victim of um, these storms are going to happen and these storms are going to come into our life and we're going to discover as we're in our little boat on a on a lake that we grew up on for these guys that grew up on the lake of galilee we're going to realize that i am out of my depth there's nothing i can do about this situation there's nothing i can do to change the wind and i am at the mercy of the wind it seems some of these things may be grief maybe physical illness it may be a relationship crisis financial disaster it could be personal failure and it's interesting because studies show, some studies show that when people observe someone that is a victim of a very difficult situation, they hear a story about someone suffering maybe, people secretly believe that in some way the victim is at fault. Have you ever done that? Looked at somebody and you say, wow, man, that what, a, what a wreck that is. They were just not being smart. Or I would have done it differently. Or I'm never going to be in that situation because I've pre-planned. I've got everything laid out, right? And that is just another version of manipulating Christ. That in my morality or my good works or my, or my, you know, as a husband, I've pre-planned for my family and we should do that as best as we can as a dad. But in some way we are manipulating, we're thinking that God's never going to allow us to go through a storm because in some way I have not... I have, I have made sure that I am not going to be, I'm not going to get myself in that situation. And we do this because of self-defense. We do this because we desperately want to believe that because of what we do or what we believe, we won't find ourselves in a storm because we're smart people. We're smart enough and that we're earning kudos with God with our good deeds. That's another version of manipulating Christ. But in verse 20, we see this really beautiful thing happen. In the midst of the storm, Jesus... By the way, we see two storms in the, in the New Testament. Jesus is in two storms. One of the storms, he speaks, and the entire storm is silent. Remember that? Jesus walks in. He's, he says, be still. The whole storm is still, and it's quiet. 
the other the other story is this Jesus does not speak and the storm does not get still Jesus draws near to the disciples in the boat there's two kinds of storms in our lives there are those that God speaks and there's silence and then there's those that he does not speak but he draws near and the scene is is that these disciples are on the Sea of Galilee they're in this boat and Jesus is on the mountain and he's on the mountain praying and I can just imagine Jesus is there and somehow he sees his disciples in the water he sees the trouble that they're in he has compassion and he comes down and he walks on their waters I think that we need to understand and we said this last Sunday that when we are in need when we feel like we're not we don't have what we need we feel broken, we feel needy. The Lord thinks upon us. The Lord thinks about you. Even if you're in a situation that you caused, that I caused, the Lord's thinking about you, and he has compassion on you. He's not up there thinking, well, that's his fault. That's the way we would think, right? Jesus saw the multitudes in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 9. He saw the multitudes, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I think when we look at this high school over here, Magnolia High School, when I look at the families, people that we meet on Saturdays, on, in, when we're in, in neighborhoods, I'm sure that some of you guys, when you're out doing outreach, um, College Station, you see people, and you see you see bro, you see kids. It's like little kids, you know, and you discover, you just discover God's heart for these people, and when we think that way, our words are different. Our actions are different. And Jesus sees his disciples and he goes down there and he starts walking on their water. And and this is really beautiful. Number three, Jesus is our Jonah. Look at verse 20. Let's look at 21. And they were glad. So verse 20, he said to them, this, it is I, do not be afraid. And, and they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. A couple of things I want to say here and then I want to close. They were anxious. They were fear. They were fearful, of course. Experienced sailors, fishermen. Yet they were terrified when they saw Jesus. Terrified. It's another word. It's another level. Mark's gospel brings us out. They were. They were. They were frightened. Okay. Why were they frightened? Why were they? Why were they? Why were they freaking out when they saw Christ? Jesus said, "It is I," which is in the Greek "ego eimi," which means "I am." It means I always am, not just was. Not that I'm just going to be faithful in your life. Not that I was just faithful in somebody else's life. But I am faithful today, this moment. And I will always be. And I think we often tell people, and I do this, we say to people that are in trouble, or we say this to our family, hey, you know what, God will be faithful. I would like to say that that is accurate, but it may not be 100% accurate. We should say God is faithful, even if the provision hasn't come. And I think when provisions have not come, and things that you're praying for... This is what I do. I say, Lord, thank you that it's already there. <laughs> I love this because Jesus said to Philip when he saw the multitudes without food and they were hungry, and he turns to Philip, which is the pragmatic disciple of the group, and he says, Philip, how are we going to feed all of these guys? And Philip looks at his wallet. He pulls his wallet out. And he's like, well, you know, he goes, if we had six months or a half, half a year's wages, maybe we could buy enough bread where everybody could get one bite. All right, that's the pragmatic Philip is in us. Then there's Andrew. He says, Andrew's like the optimist of the disciples. He's like, well, there's this kid here and he's got like this lunch here, but how much, that is so little for so many people. 
And Jesus asked these disciples, he asked Philip, and it says, and I love this tagline, it says, because he knew what he was going to do. And when you see a need, when you see a storm, when you see something happening in your life and a problem, and you're like, and you're saying to your wife or your husband or you're saying to yourself or to people, you're saying, what am I going to do? Just realize that Jesus is asking that same question through the circumstance. And then remember this, because Jesus already knows what he's going to do. And you know what the answer is to that question? Lord, thou knowest, right? Remember when Ezekiel is in the valley and the Lord shows him this whole valley of dry bones, right? And Ezekiel's a mighty prophet of fire, right? And, and Jesus, and the Lord says to Elijah, he says, Elijah, can these bones live? Now, if I was Elijah, I'd be like, yes, God, we can do it. Just like call the Holy Spirit down. We could just like have a revival meeting. We just like, just, we could just blow this whole place and they would all live. But he doesn't do that because he's not, pres- he's not presuming. I blew out, I think I destroyed the mic. Oh, there we go. He, he, did, he was not presuming what God was going to do. I got too loud there and they had to turn me down. Ezekiel didn't presume what the plan of God was. He said, Lord, thou knowest. You got a plan. And that's the right answer, right? You are faithful for this moment. You got a plan. Because he's present. And Jesus says, I am. Now, why, is this, why are the disciples uh, fearful? Because storms in the Old Testament always, remet, always pointed to the catastrophe in the creation that we live in, the disharmony the broken world that we live in, the uncontrollable forces that we as human beings try to, in every way, we build dams, we, we build gullies to control floodwaters. We do all of these things so that we control the world that we live in. And we do this as individuals in our families too. We pre-plan as best as we can. And what happens is that we realize that this world, we are not in control of this world. And these disciples, these disciples realize that. They're in a storm. But what does this story remind you? And I want to wrap it up here. What does this story remind you of, this parable, this scene? It's not a story, it's a historical fact. But what does this remind you of when the disciples are in the boat, sailors in a boat, afraid in the middle of a storm, and there's a special man on board? What does that remind you of? Old Testament story. Jonah, right? And didn't, somebody said that, kudos to you, extra, extra plate of food for him. <laughs> what, is this, what does this mean? It means this, is Jesus said, I'm the ultimate Jonah, and what is Jonah? Jonah's a picture of like the, like it's an example and there's a term for it and I can't remember, but it's in literary, it's in literature when you have an extremely bad opposite example of what it should really be, but it's the worst example as you can imagine. Jonah was the unwilling missionary and Jonah's on this boat going in the wrong direction, right? And there's a storm comes and the sailors are afraid. They're throwing everything off overboard and they're saying what, and they're trying to figure out which God is angry at them. And they get to Jonah. Jonah comes up to guys, it's my fault. This, this storm is my fault. The storm that we're in is my fault. Jesus, the ultimate Jonah, the fulfillment of the, of the, of the concept of Jonah comes on the boat and he says, guys, don't be afraid. I'm taking this storm. And of course, we know he's pointing to the ultimate storm at the cross. The, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. He says, I'm going to weather this storm. Even, it's not, even though it's not my storm, it's not a storm that I cause like Jonah. It's a storm that Adam and you and the descendants of Adam, you created this. You messed up your world. But because I love you, 
I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to weather the greatest storm. And this is what happened. Disciples were not terrified. And it says here in the Greek, it says there's a word here. They, it's, I think in the, in the King James it says they were willing or they were happy. What happened, what the, what the, what the, what the word means is, it says that at that moment when they heard Jesus said, I am, be not afraid, they wanted him in the boat. They invited him into the boat. They, they welcomed him into the boat. One other thing I'd like to say about the word I am. Every time this word I am is used in the Old Testament, it's a very scary situation. It's a very scary. There's a, there's a bush that's on fire. Moses is talking to a bush that's just burning, right? That's odd. Then Moses is at, the, at, at Mount Sinai, Right? And, and there's this mountain that's on fire and it's blackened. There's nothing that's growing on it. A fence had to be built around Sinai because God lived on the top and it was always on fire. And anything that would, went towards that mountain, that even got close to the mountain because the I am was there, would have to be, would have to be you know, have to be stabbed to death or burnt with fire. I mean, it was just a ter- Then there's this other example where Moses is going to go see the Pharaoh and then, and God has this unbelievable plan to pour out wrath and, and pour out these plagues on, on, on Egypt. And, and, God says, and God says, I am sent you. And every time that in the Old Testament we hear this term, I am, it always was associated with get back, do not draw near, you're a sinner, you're a wreck, get away from me, you blew up your life, I'm holy, I'm pure, and you cannot, get, you cannot draw near to me. Another example, Moses, or, um, yeah, Moses. Moses is, um, Moses is speaking to God, God's, and, and Moses says to, to God, show me your glory. And, Moses, and God says, you can't see my glory, because if you see my glory, you're, gonna just, you're just gonna burn a lot. You're just gonna, you're, you're gonna, just, every atom in your body is just gonna disintegrate, and you cannot see, or you'll be, you'll be destroyed. Jesus says, here, and I love this, because when we're in the middle of our storms, and if there's only one thing you can remember from this message, when you are in a storm, and you're looking at your storm, you say, you know what? This, this is my fault, or this was somebody else's fault, not my fault. Instead of blaming yourself or blaming other people, instead of living in this sense of separation from God, Jesus says, I am, but do not be afraid. Don't you love that? Fear not. I love that. I was thinking about this this morning. It really just touched my heart. Sometimes when I study in the morning, it's really in the morning, I get up and I'm pacing and just thinking and praying. And I just have so much, I just had this great time with the Lord. And I was just thinking, remember when Peter is in the boat? I know I'm going a little bit long, but you know when Peter was in the boat and Jesus, uh, Peter's just full of unbelief. And Jesus says, cast the net on the right side. He goes, ah, whatever, okay, you know, okay. Nevertheless, at thy rhema, I'll just throw down the net goes on the net and it's you know this massive catch right and and they had to call the other boats over and they're pulling it and something breaks in, in peter's heart he's looking at the he's looking at the at the grace miracle and he's thinking wow like man i'm not a good guy i'm not a good person and he goes to jesus and he falls on his face before jesus in the boat and he says depart from me depart from me i am a sinner you ever do that with God? You ever do that in a relationship? You're just like, you know what? I'm not a great person, and I don't know if you want to hang out with me. I'm probably going to disappoint you, Jesus. I know you got some great expectations for me, 
but I know I'm going to disappoint you. You ever feel that way in a relationship or your relationship with God? And what does Jesus say? Fear not. Fear not, Peter. Because from this time on, you're going to be a fisher of men. And when we are living in fear, guilty fear, or terror fear, or fear that we've created in our life, Jesus comes in. That's beautiful because another, in the original, when Jesus walks in and he says, fear not, it is, it is, it is I, fear not. You know what he says? He's not screaming and he's not, not yelling over the storm. Ever been in a storm and just like yelling like, I can't hear you. And you're like 10 feet from each other, right? Jesus walks in. He's strolling. He's walking. The storm has no power over him. It's like, there's not even a hair on his head is blowing in the wind. And he comes and I, this is, and I don't know if I can prove this, but it seems to be the tone of this, of the text. He says, when he says, it is I be not afraid. I think he's whispering. I think he's talking like this. Because, you know, when people are intimate with each other and they're not yelling, their voices are lower. They're just, you know, when you have two people that are so in love with each other, they're whispering. Because just even the whisper is a holler in their ear because of love and intimacy. This is the way it is with Jesus. Jesus does not yell at us. Jesus is not screaming at us because he's not dealing with psychic noise inside of himself where he's got to get over his own emotions. He says, disciples, he goes, it is I, be not afraid, because Jesus is our Jonah. Jesus is the Jonah that he said, you, I'm going to get thrown overboard because I'm, I'm taking this storm on, the storm of your sin and the storm of your pain, the storm of your, of your and my ridiculousness. And when we look at that storm, when we're in the middle of a storm, Jesus is walking on your waters. He's walking on your waters. Don't blame yourself. Don't live in guilt. Don't live in any kind of form of, God, I promise never do that again. Never live in some kind of thing like, I don't deserve this and, and I'm a victim. But look at Jesus because he's coming towards you. And it may be scary when he's coming. I don't know what it would have been like to see a supernatural human being that is greater than all other gods and who is in the form of a man, God in the form of a man, walking on the water. He's coming to his disciples. And it says, I love this, it says in the scripture, and he drew near their boat. You know, don't you love that? Sometimes I'm counseling a couple that's really going through a hard time in their marriage out of state. And I just said, you know what? It looks really rough now, but Jesus is drawn near to your boat. Let him in your boat. Let him in your marriage. I want to close with this. If Jesus didn't abandon you in the ultimate storm, will he abandon you in your storm? John Newton wrote, and I, I don't know about you, but I like to read old, old hymns. And when I lived in New England, um, there's lots of old books up there. There was all these revivals up there all the way back from, you know, 1700s. And sometimes you can go to these really old, old barn sales. and You can find some really old books that are just not in print anymore. And, I, and I always look for hymnals, old, old hymnals. Because some of the newer hymnals don't have the old stuff in it, the really good stuff. And I look and I, and I get these and I collect these hymnals. And there's this one hymn by John Newton. And I've never heard it sung. And I don't read music. Uh, but I've, I've and, and I just I love the words and sometimes I'll just open up my hymnal I have a hymnal and I'll just read through it I love poetry and it says this John Newton said this in a hymn that he said I will trust and not be afraid be gone unbelief my savior is near and for my relief will surely appear by prayer let me wrestle and he will perform with Christ in the vessel 
I smile at the storm. His love in time past forbids me to think that he'll leave me at last in trouble, my trouble to sink. Amen.